Chapter Three, Part One of the History of the Standard Oil by Ida M. Tarbell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Three: The Oil War of eighteen seventy-two. It was not until after the middle of February eighteen seventy-two that the people of the oil regions heard anything of the plan which was being worked out for their good. Then an uneasy rumor began running up and down the creek. Freight rates were going up. Now an advance in a man's freight bill may ruin his business. More, it may mean the ruin of a region. Rumor said it that the new rate meant just this. That is, it more than covered the margin of profit in any branch of the oil business. The railroads were not going to apply the proposed tariffs to everybody. They had agreed to give a company unheard of until now, the South Improvement Company, a special rate considerably lower than the new open rate. It was only a rumor, and many people discredited it. Why should the railroads ruin the oil regions to build up a company of outsiders? But facts began to be reported. Mr. Doan, the Cleveland shipper already quoted, told how suddenly on the 22nd of February, without notice, his rate from the oil regions to Cleveland was put up from 35 cents a barrel to 65 cents, an advance of $24 on a carload. Mr. Josiah Lombard of the New York refining firm of Ayers, Lombard & Company was buying oil for his company at Oil City. Their refinery was running about 12,000 barrels a month. On the 19th of February, the rate from Oil City to Buffalo, which had been 40 cents a barrel, was raised to 65 cents, and a few days later the rate from Warren to New York was raised from 87 cents to $2.14. Mr. Lombard was not aware of this change until his house in New York reported to him that the bills for freight were so heavy that they could not afford to ship and wanted to know what was the matter. On the morning of February 26, 1872, the oil men read in their morning papers that the rise which had been threatening had come, moreover that all members of the South Improvement Company were exempt from the advance. At the news all oildom rushed into the streets. Nobody waited to find out his neighbor's opinion. On every lip there was but one word, and that was conspiracy. In the vernacular of the region it was evident that a torpedo was filling for that scheme. In twenty-four hours after the announcement of the increase in freight rates, a mass meeting of three thousand excited, gesticulating oilmen was gathered in the opera house at Titusville. Producers, brokers, refiners, drillers, pumpers were in the crowd. Their temper was shown by the mottoes on the banners which they carried. Down with the conspirators! No compromise! don't give up the ship. Three days later, as large a meeting was held at Oil City, its temper more warlike if possible, and so it went. They organized a petroleum producers' union, pledged themselves to reduce their production by starting no new wells for sixty days, and by shutting down on Sundays to sell no oil to any person known to be in the South Improvement Company, but to support the creek refiners and those elsewhere who had refused to go into the combination to boycott the offending railroads and to build lines which they would own and control themselves. 
they sent a committee to the legislature asking that the charter of the South Improvement Company be repealed, and another to Congress demanding an investigation of the whole business on the ground that it was an interference with trade. They ordered that a history of the conspiracy, giving the names of the conspirators and the designs of the company, should be prepared, and thirty thousand copies sent to judges of all courts, senators of the United States, members of Congress and of state legislatures, and to all railroad men and prominent businessmen of the country, to the end that enemies of the freedom of trade may be known and shunned by all honest men. They prepared a petition ninety-three feet long praying for a free pipeline bill, something which they had long wanted, but which so far the Pennsylvania Railroad had prevented their getting, and sent it by a committee to the legislature and for days they kept one thousand men ready to march on Harrisburg at a moment's notice if the legislature showed signs of refusing their demands. In short, for weeks the whole body of oil men abandoned regular business and surged from town to town intent on destroying the monster, the forty thieves, the great anaconda, as they called the mysterious South Improvement Company. Curiously enough, it was chiefly against the combination which had secured the discrimination from the railroads, not the railroads which had granted it, that their fury was directed. They expected nothing but robbery from the railroads, they said. They were used to that, but they would not endure it from men in their own business. When they began the fight the mass of the oil men knew nothing more of the South Improvement Company than its name and the fact that it had secured from the railroads advantages and rates which were bound to ruin all independent refiners of oil and to put all producers at its mercy. Their tempers were not improved by the discovery that it was a secret organization, and that it had been at work under their very eyes for some weeks without their knowing it. At the first public meeting this fact came out, leading refiners of the region relating their experience with the Anaconda. According to one of these gentlemen, J.D. Archbald, the same who afterward became vice-president of the Standard Oil Company, which office he now holds, he and his partners had heard of the scheme some months before. Alarmed by the rumor, a committee of independent refiners had attempted to investigate, but could learn nothing until they had been given a promise not to reveal what was told them. When convinced that a company had been formed actually strong enough to force or persuade the railroads to give it special rates and refuse them to all persons outside, Mr. Archbald said that he and his colleagues had gone to the railway kings to remonstrate, but all to no effect. The South Improvement Company, by some means, had convinced the railroads that they owned the oil regions, producers and refiners both, and that hereafter no oil of any account would be shipped except as they shipped it. Mr. Archibald and his partners had been asked to join the company, but had refused, declaring that the whole business was iniquitous, that they would fight it to the end, and that in their fight they would have the backing of the oil men as a whole. They excused their silence up to this time by citing the pledge extracted from them before they were informed of the extent and nature of the South Improvement Company. Naturally the burning question throughout the oil regions, convinced as it was of the inequity of the scheme, was, who are the conspirators? Whether the gentlemen concerned regarded themselves in the light of conspirators or not, 
they seem from the first to have realized that it would be discreet not to be identified publicly with the scheme and to have allowed one name alone to appear in all signed negotiations this was the name of the president peter h watson however anxious the members of the south improvement company were that mr watson should combine the honors of president with the trials of scapegoat it was impossible to keep their names concealed the oil city derrick at that time one of the most vigorous witty and daring newspapers in the country began a blacklist at the head of its editorial columns the day after the raisin freight was announced and it kept it there until it was believed complete it stood finally as it appears on the opposite page this list was not exact but it was enough to go on and the oil blockade to which the petroleum producers union had pledged itself was now enforced against the firms listed and as far as possible against the railroads all of these refineries had their buyers on the creek and although several of them were young men generally liked for their personal and business qualities no mercy was shown them they were refused oil by everybody though they offered from seventy-five cents to a dollar more than the market price they were ordered at one meeting to desist from their nefarious business or leave the oil region and when they declined they were invited to resign from the oil exchanges of which they were members so strictly indeed was the blockade enforced that in cleveland the refineries were closed and meetings for the relief of the workmen were held in spite of the excitement there was little vandalism the only violence at the opening of the war being at franklin where a quantity of the oil belonging to mr watson was run on the ground the sudden uprising of the oil regions against the south improvement company did not alarm its members at first the excitement would die out they told one another all that they needed to do was to keep quiet and stay out of the oil country but the excitement did not die out. Indeed, with every day it became more intense and more widespread. When Mr. Watson's tanks were tapped, he began to protest in letters to a friend, F. W. Mitchell, a prominent banker and oil man of Franklin. The company was misunderstood, he complained. Have a committee of leading producers appointed, he wrote, and we will show that the contracts with the railroads are as favorable to the producing as to other interests that the much-denounced rebate will enhance the price of oil at the wells and that our entire plan in operation and effect will promote every legitimate american interest in the oil trade mr mitchell urged mr watson to come openly to the oil regions and meet the producers as a body a mass meeting was never a deliberative body mr watson replied but if a few of the leading oil men would go to albany or new york or any place favorable to calm investigation and deliberation and therefore outside of the atmosphere of excitement which enveloped the oil country he would see them these letters were read to the producers and a motion to appoint a committee was made it was received with protests and jeers mr watson was afraid to come to the oil regions they said the letters were not addressed to the association. They were private, an insult to the body. "'We are lowering our dignity to treat with this man Watson,' declared one man. "'He is free to come to these meetings if he wants to.' "'What is there to negotiate about?' asked another. "'To open a negotiation is to concede that we are wrong. Can we go halves with these middlemen in their swindle?' 
he has set a trap for us declared another we cannot treat him without guilt and the motion was voted down the stopping of the oil supply finally forced the south improvement company to recognize the producers union officially by asking that a committee of the body be appointed to confer with them on a compromise the producers sent back a pertinent answer they believed the south improvement company meant to monopolize the oil business if that was so they could not consider a compromise with it if they were wrong they would be glad to be enlightened and they asked for information first the charter under which the south improvement company was organized second the articles of association third the officers names fourth the contracts with the railroads which signed them fifth the general plan of management until we know these things the oil men declared we can no more negotiate with you than we could sit down to negotiate with a burglar as to his privileges in our house the producers union did not get the information they asked from the company at that time but it was not long before they had it and much more the committee which they had appointed to write a history of the south improvement company reported on march twenty and in april the congressional committee appointed at the insistence of the oil men made its investigation the former report was published broadcast and is readily accessible today the congressional investigation was not published officially and no trace of its work can now be found in washington but while it was going on reports were made in the newspapers of the oil regions and at its close the producers union published in lancaster pennsylvania a pamphlet called a history of the rise and fall of the south improvement company which contains the full testimony taken by the committee this pamphlet is rare the writer never having been able to find a copy save in three or four private collections the most important part of it is the testimony of peter h watson the president and w g warden the secretary of the south improvement company it was in these documents that the oil men found full justification for the war they were carrying on and for the losses they had caused themselves and others nothing indeed could have been more damaging to a corporation than the publication of the charter of the south improvement company as its president told the congressional investigating committee when he was under examination this charter was a sort of clothes horse to hang a scheme upon as a matter of fact it was a clothes horse big enough to hang the earth upon it granted powers practically unlimited there really was no exaggeration in the summary of its powers made and scattered broadcast by the irate oil men in their history of the rise and fall of the south improvement company the south improvement company can own contract or operate any work business or traffic save only banking may hold and transfer any kind of property real or personal hold and operate on any leased property oil territory for instance make any kind of contract deal in stock securities and funds loan its credit guarantee anyone's paper manipulate any industry may seize upon the lands of other parties for railroading or any other purpose may absorb the improvements property or franchises of another company ad infinitum may fix the fares tolls or freights to be charged on lines of transit operated by it or on any business it gives to any other company or line without limit 
its capital stock can be expanded or watered at liberty it can change its name and location at pleasure can go anywhere and do almost anything it is not a pennsylvania corporation only it can so far as these enactments are valid or are confirmed by other legislatures operate in any state or territory its directors must only be citizens of the united states not necessarily of pennsylvania it is responsible to no one its stockholders are only liable to the amount of their stock in it its directors when wielding all the princely powers of the corporation are also responsible only to the amount of their stock in it it may control the business of the continent and hold and transfer millions of property and yet be rotten to the core it is responsible to no one makes no reports of its acts or financial condition its records and deliberations are secret its capital illimitable its object unknown it can be here today tomorrow away its domain is the whole country its business everything now it is petroleum it grasps and monopolizes next year it may be iron coal cotton or breadstuffs they are landsmen granted perpetual letters of marquee to prey upon all commerce everywhere when the course of this charter through the pennsylvania legislature came to be traced it was found to be devious and uncertain the company had been incorporated in eighteen seventy one and vested with all the powers privileges duties and obligations of an earlier company incorporated in eighteen seventy the pennsylvania company both of them were children of that interesting body known as the tom scott legislature the act incorporating the company was not published until after the oil war its sponsor was never known and no votes on it are recorded the origin of the south improvement company has always remained in darkness it was one of several improvement companies chartered in pennsylvania at about the same time and enjoying the same commercial carte blanche bad as the charter was in appearance the oil men found that the contracts which the new company had made with the railroads were worse these contracts advanced the rates of freight from the oil regions over one hundred per cent an advance which more than covered the margin of profit on their business but it was not the railroad that got the greater part of this advance it was the south improvement company not only did it ship its own oil at fully a dollar a barrel cheaper on an average than anybody else could but it received fully a dollar a barrel rake-off on every barrel its competitors shipped it was computed and admitted by the members of the company who appeared before the investigating committee of congress that this discrimination would have turned over to them fully six million dollars annually on the carrying trade the railroads expected to receive about one and a half millions more than from the existing rates that is an additional cost of about a dollar twenty-five cents a barrel was added to crude oil and it was computed that this would enable the refiners to advance their wholesale price at least four cents a gallon it is hardly to be wondered at that when the oil men had before them the full text of these contracts they refused absolutely to accept the repeated assertions of the members of the south improvement company that their scheme was intended only for the good of the oil business the committee of congress could not be persuaded to believe it either your success meant the destruction of every refiner who refused for any reason to join your company 
or whom you did not care to have in, and it put the producers entirely in your power. It would make a monopoly such as no set of men are fit to handle, the chairman of the committee declared. Of course Mr. Warden, the secretary of the company, protested again and again that they meant to take in all the refiners, but when he had to admit that the contracts with the railroads were not made on this condition, his protestations met with little credence. Besides, there was the damning fact that no refiners had come in except those in Cleveland, and that they with one accord testified that they had yielded to force. Not a single factory in either New York or the oil regions was in the combination. The fact that these producers had never been approached in any way looked very bad for the company, too. Mr. Watson affirmed and reaffirmed before the committee that it was the intention of the company to take care of the producers. It was an essential part of this contract that the producers should join it, he declared. But no such condition was embodied in the contract. It was verbal only, and, besides, it had never been submitted to the producers themselves in any form until after the trouble in the oil regions began. The committee, like the oil men, insisted that under the circumstances no such verbal understanding was to be trusted. No part of the testimony before the committee made a worse impression than that showing that the chief object of the combination was to put up the price of refined oil to the consumer, though nobody had denied from the first that this was the purpose. In a circular intended for private circulation, which appeared in the newspapers about this time, explaining the facts of the South Improvement Company, this was made clear. The object of this combination of interests, ran the circular, is understood to be twofold. Firstly, to do away, at least in great measure, with the excessive and undue competition now existing between the refining interests, by reason of there being a far greater refining capacity than is called for or justified by the existing petroleum-consuming requirements of the world. Secondly, to avoid the heretofore undue competition between the various railroad companies transporting oil to the seaboard by fixing a uniform rate of freight which it is thought can be adhered to by some such arrangement as guaranteeing to each road some such percentages of the profit of the aggregate amount of oil transported, whether the particular line carries it or not. It is also asserted that a prominent feature of the combination will be to limit the production of refined petroleum to such amounts as may serve, in a great measure, to do away with the serious periodical depressions in the article. It is also to be expected that, desiring to curtail the production of refined petroleum in this country, the railroads will not offer any additional facilities for exportation of the crude article. A writer in the Oil City Derrick, quoted in the Cleveland Herald, March 2, 1872, said, The ring pretend that they will make their margin out of the consumers. That is, they will put refined up to a figure that will enable them to pay well for crude. The consumers are the avowed victims, since they must pay a price which will warrant the ring in going on with their operations. And the producer's security for the price is a mere matter of discretion. Whether the members of the company discussed the subject, they put forward this object as one sufficient to justify the combination. If refined oil was put up, everybody in the trade would make more money. To this end, the public ought to be willing to pay more. 
When Mr. Warden was under examination by the committee, the chairman said to him, Under your arrangement, the public would have been put to an additional expense of $7,500,000 a year. What public? said Mr. Warden. They would have had to pay it in Europe. But to keep up the price abroad, you wouldn't have had to keep up the price at home, said the chairman. Mr. Warden conceded the point. You could not get a better price for that exporter without having a better price here, he said. Mr. Watson contended that the price could be put up with benefit to the consumer, and when he was asked how, he replied, by steadying the trade. You will notice what all those familiar with this trade know, that there are very rapid and excessive fluctuations in the oil market, that when these fluctuations take place, the retail dealers are always quick to note a rise in price, but very slow to note a fall. Even if two dollars a barrel had been added to the price of oil under a steady trade, I think the price of the retail purchaser would not have been increased. That increased price would only amount to one cent a quart, four cents a gallon, and I think the price would not have been increased to the retail dealer, because the fluctuations would have been avoided. That was one object to be accomplished. The committee were not convinced, however, that a scheme which began by adding four cents to the price of a gallon of oil could be to the good of the consumer. Nor did anything appear in the contracts which showed how the fluctuations in the price of oil were to be avoided. These fluctuations were due to the rise and fall in the crude market, and that depended on the amount of crude coming from the ground. The South Improvement Company might assert that they meant to bring the producers into their scheme and persuade them to keep down the amount of production in the same way they meant to keep down refined, so that the price could be kept steadily high. But they had nothing to prove that they were sincere in the intention, nothing to prove that they had thought of the producers seriously, until the trouble in the oil regions began. It looked very much to the committee as if the real intention of the company was to keep up the price of refined to a certain figure by limiting the output and that there was nothing to show that it would not go up with crude, though it might not go down with it. Under these circumstances it seemed as if a fluctuating market which gave a moderate average was better for the consumer than the steady price which Mr. Watson thought so good for the public. Thirty-two cents a gallon was the ideal price they had in view, though refined had not sold for that since 1869, the average price in 1870 being twenty-six and three-eighths and in 1871, 24 and a quarter. The refiner who in 1871 sold his oil at 24 and a quarter cents a gallon cleared easily 52 cents a barrel, a large profit on his investments, but the refiners in the early stages of this new industry had made much larger profits. It was to perpetuate these early profits that they had gone into the South Improvement Company. It did not take the full exposition of the objects of the South Improvement Company, brought out by the Congressional Investigating Committee, with the publication of charters and contracts, to convince the country at large that the oil regions were right in their opposition. From the first, the sympathy of the press and the people were with the oil men. It was evident to everybody that if the railroads had made the contracts as charged, and it daily became more evident they had done so. Nothing but an absolute monopoly of the whole oil business by this combination could result. It was robbery, cried the newspapers all over the land. 
under the thin guise of assisting in the development of oil refining in Pittsburgh and Cleveland, said the New York Tribune, this corporation has simply laid its hand upon the throat of the oil traffic with a demand to stand and deliver. And if this could be done in the oil business, what was to prevent it being done in any other industry? Why should not a company be formed to control wheat or bread or iron or steel as well as oil? If the railroads would do this for one company, why not for another? The South Improvement Company, men agreed, was a menace to the free trade of the country. If the oil men yielded now, all industries must suffer from their weakness. The railroads must be taught a lesson as well as would-be monopolists. The oil men had no thought of yielding. With every day of the war their backbone grew stiffer. The men were calmer, too, for their resistance had found a ground which seemed impregnable to them, and arguments against the South Improvement Company now took the place of denunciations. On all sides, men said, this is a transportation question, and now is the time to put an end once and forever to the rebates. This sentiment against discrimination on account of amount of freight or for any other reason had been strong in the country since its beginning, and it now crystallized immediately. The country so buzzed with discussion on the duties of the railroads that reporters sent from the eastern newspapers commented on it. Nothing was commoner, indeed, on the trains which ran the length of the region and were its real forums than to hear a man explaining that the railways derived their existence and power from the people, that their charters were contracts with the people, that a fundamental provision of these contracts was that there should be no discriminating in favor of one person or one town, that such a discrimination was a violation of charter, that therefore the South Improvement Company was founded on fraud, and that the courts must dissolve it if the railways did not abandon it. The Petroleum Producers Union, which had been formed to grapple with the monster, actually demanded interstate regulation, for in a circular sent out to newspapers and boards of trade asking their aid against the conspiracy, they included this paragraph. We urge you to exert all your influence with your representatives in Congress to support such measures offered there as will prohibit for all future time any monopoly of railroads or other transportation companies from laying embargoes upon the trade between states by a system of excessive freights or unjust discrimination against buyers or shippers at any trade, by the allowance of rebates or drawbacks to any persons whatever. This is a matter of national importance, and only the most decided action can protect you and us from the scheming strength of these monopolies. How the whole question appeared to an intelligent oil man, one too, who had had the courage to resist in the attack on the trade in Cleveland, and who still was master of his own refinery, is shown by the following letter to the Cleveland Herald. Editors Herald As I understand, the financial success of this South Improvement Company is based upon contracts made with the officers, either individually or otherwise, of all the railroads leading out of the oil region, by which they, the South Improvement Company, receive as a drawback certain excess of freights, not only on every barrel of oil shipped out of the oil regions by or to themselves, but also on every barrel of oil shipped out of the oil regions by or to other refineries or dealers or consumers. The first advance in freights to Cleveland has already been made. 
be on crude oil from forty cents to sixty-five cents per barrel. This seemingly slight advance has already caused one party that I know of to pay an excess of over two thousand dollars. Other firms have paid larger or smaller sums according to the quantity of oil they were compelled to have. This excess, we suppose, goes directly to swell the profits of the South Improvement Company. This is only the beginning. The whole extent of the evil that may be done to producers, refiners, dealers, and consumers, and to the public generally, if this corporation, or rather combination of corporations, is successful, is so deep and varied and far-reaching that it cannot be fully comprehended, and I will not attempt it in detail, but only suggest a few inquiries. Where will be their limits? How high will they advance freights? How low will they force the price of crude? How high refined? Will they adopt a liberal policy for producers, or will they destroy their interests and crush out the oil production entirely? Will they be liberal with dealers and consumers, and adopt uniform rules with steady prices, or will they take advantage of times and circumstances and force ruinous corners upon the trade? These and many other questions are pertinent, for clearly if they can control the shipment they can control the price of oil, and if they can control the price to the extent of twenty-five cents per barrel they can control it entirely. If they can control it entirely, where will be their limit? who will dictate a line of policy to them? And may not one of the greatest and most important industries of this country be destroyed and hundreds of thousands of businessmen be made bankrupt if this combination is successful and has the disposition to work ruin? I do not say that I think they will work ruin. They undoubtedly will attempt to make all the money they can and will pursue such a policy as, in their judgment, will bring them the utmost amount of profits, regardless of consequences, but what that policy will be, of course, we cannot judge. It is understood that the parties to this combination excuse themselves in their action before the public by reciting the undoubted facts in the case. They are these, that the refining of oil as a business has been of late and is now overdone, that the capacity for refining oil in this country exceeds the production in the ratio of three barrels to one, that the railroads have reduced freights to their lowest extreme and were even losing money, that refiners, in spite of all their efforts, could not earn their running expenses, that the special interests of Cleveland as a refining point were in danger of being lost, and that this great business might go to other points and the millions of dollars in refining property here to be sacrificed, and thousands of men thrown out of employment that real estate would depreciate, and that many other collateral troubles connected with the loss of this business would follow, and that now, by the consummation of the plans of this monopoly, all these evils will be avoided. In answer to this, assuming that the refining interest of Cleveland is a unit in this corporation, that of Pittsburgh another, that of New York another, and that of Philadelphia another, it follows that it is immaterial to the stockholders of the South Improvement Company whether the oil produced at the oil regions is refined by them at their works in Cleveland, or at Pittsburgh, or in New York, or in Philadelphia. It would not affect their dividends at all, 
provided they refined the oil at the cheapest point for them to do so. That place might be Cleveland. It might be Pittsburgh. And it might not be either of them. But it might be New York or Philadelphia. Therefore, as long as it is for the pecuniary advantage of this combination to refine at Cleveland, they may do so. But no longer, and should it be for the interest of the combination, to discontinue their works at Cleveland, what would become of the oil-refining interest at this point? That question everybody can answer. Therefore I see little weight to the argument used that this monopoly is for the benefit of Cleveland. Hence I do not consider the special danger to Cleveland by any means as averted. But without discussing this position, its advantages or disadvantages as an oil-refining center, for it has both in a marked degree, on general principles I will assert that the laws of business and manufacturing interests, like the laws of supply and demand, are unchangeable, and that a prosperity such as this monopoly would bring us is a forced prosperity, consequently not permanent, but temporary and fictitious in character, and damaging in its ultimate results. And more than all this, if the refining prosperity of Cleveland could be re-established permanently by means of the success of this monopoly, we could not afford to accept it at the cost proposed, viz. that of enriching ourselves at the expense of those who are weaker, but are in power. We have just refused to build an opera house because we should, by using the only means we could command to do so, compromise our morality. How much more emphatically should we refuse to accept any benefits to our city which have their origin in unmitigated fraud? In the opera house instance just cited, the managers used the compulsion. No unwilling man would be forced by them to buy a ticket and take his chances. But the South Improvement Company forced every producer to take a less price for his oil without rendering him an equivalent. They force every refiner who is in their way to prosecute his business against them as competitors at fearful odds, and perhaps at the expense of a royalty on every barrel, or to sell his works and abandon his business to the South Improvement Company at any paltry price they may dictate. They also force every consumer of oil on this broad continent, after paying all the legitimate cost of producing, refining, and transportation on oil, to pay them also an additional tribute. For what? Absolutely nothing. The railroad companies derive their existence and power to act under charters granted them by the citizens through their legislatures of the several states in which they exist. This charter is a contract made by and between the citizens of the one part and the railroad company on the other, and both parties bind themselves alike to the faithful performance of the conditions of the contract. One of the fundamental provisions of this contract is that there shall be no discrimination shown to any individuals or body of individuals as to facilities or privileges of doing business with such railway company. On the contrary, the railroad company is expressly required in all cases to charge uniform rates for the transportation of freight and passengers they must, if desired, carry the freight for A that they do for B, and always at the same price. Any deviation from this stipulated condition is a willful and fraudulent violation of their contract. 
if it is by means of such violations of contracts on the part of the several railroad companies connected with them, that the South Improvement Company expects success, then the whole gigantic structure is established upon fraud as a basis, and it ought to come down. Very respectfully, F. M. Bacchus, Cleveland, Ohio, March 5, 1872. This is the end of Chapter 3, Part 1. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com.